Well, as we begin our time tonight, I'll just ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer as we dedicate our time to the Lord and ask for His uh, mercy and grace on us. Father, we thank You for tonight. We thank You again that we can be together. We can be in Your Word. We can look together at what it says and be challenged by it. And uh, oh, Lord, like that song said, oh, for grace to just trust You more, to walk faithfully with You, to never doubt, to always be... um, that which we say and truly desire to be in our hearts and our lives, that is to be like you. So thank you for tonight. Challenge us and enrich us by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to the book of Malachi. Malachi, of course, you, you know, Chris highlighted it over the past several months. We've taken an overview, really, look, a, a high altitude look, if you will, at the 12 minor prophets. It was a great time for us to be able to do that, a challenge for us as the men who who took on that project. And I trust that throughout that process, you learned uh, truths. We heard of some of them tonight. You learned truths that you had not been aware of before. And really, that, that kind of whet your appetite to kind of take those books and study them further on your own. And I said at the time that we were in the book of Malachi that I wanted to return to this book in order to take us through it in its entirety, to to walk through the entire book itself. And so I want to begin to do that tonight and for the next several Sunday evenings that we have together. Now you may remember from our overview of this book that Malachi is the final Old Testament prophet that God had sent to the nation of Israel. All of the prophets before him had spoken the word of God to the people of God. And now Malachi is that final, if you will, of the Old Testament prophets, if you counting John the Baptist as a New Testament prophet, simply because we read about him in the New Testament. Although in reality, he would have been an Old Testament prophet as well, because Jesus Christ has was coming on the scene and, of course, The New Testament church doesn't begin until the day when Christ ascends and Pentecost happens. So really, when we think about the history by way of the history itself, even the New Testament, our Old Testament history. Uh, But Malachi is located here for us in the Old Testament, and he is the, as I'm calling him, the final of the Old Testament prophets that God sends to the nation of Israel. And history tells us by way of... uh, the antiquities of history, that Malachi's prophecy was written between somewhere between 450 B.C. and 400 B.C., so somewhere in those 50 years, which was during the ministry and leadership of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was a contemporary, and uh, he would have been around during that time. So it's about 100 years after the first exiles had returned to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity that God had allowed them to be taken captive under Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And they were there for many, many years. And now they have returned. And it's about a hundred years after that whole captivity had taken place that Malachi is sent by God once again to Israel to give them a warning. And they had been, of course, back for some time, the judgment of God through, as I said, the Babylonians is now over. It had ended long time before that, and the temple worship was now reestablished. You remember under Nehemiah and under Ezra, the temple had been built, and and the reestablishment of 
those worship times had been uh, taken place, and the people of God are growing more and more, sadly, they are growing more and more inauthentic in their worship. And that's what we want to talk about here tonight. We want to deal with the subject matter, the doctrine of authenticity, if you will. The people had a serious problem. The problem had developed in their hearts, in the hearts of God's people and in the leadership of God's people, the priests, as far as the worship of God was concerned. And so Malachi's prophecy takes the form, if you read through it in its entirety, it takes the form of a continuous dialogue, a dialogue that that God is having through the prophet Malachi with the people of Israel, and God is confronting them concerning this very sin. Now, there are six sections that really make up the entirety of this prophecy. And when you go through this and you kind of do an outline yourself, you can label them in any way you'd like to label them. But, but I'm, I'm labeling them under these titles. The first one we've looked at already, we looked at it in the overview of Malachi when we were here last time, and that was the God's proven love in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. We looked at God's proven love to Esau or to Israel, and he, he says it clearly in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then secondly, the second section is God's leaders being reproved. And really it's more than God's leaders, but primarily the focus is directed at the leadership of Israel in verse 6 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 9. Thirdly is God's institution is being perverted and and uh, chapter two verse ten through the end or, or through chapter verse sixteen you see that there is sin going on in the family and there is a perversion of the institution that God had created and then in chapter two verse seventeen through chapter three verse six the fourth section of this entire prophecy whereby God's messenger is pronounced. It is a a prophecy concerning the reality of the messenger of God coming and sharing the reality of the Messiah. And then, of course, the fifth section is God's worship that is put aside, chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. The worship of God is set aside, and the sixth section is God's eternal judgment is proclaimed. And that carries on from verse 13 of chapter 3 all the way through the end of chapter 4, which is verse 6. And the last verse or the last word of Malachi's prophecy is a word of curse. That if they do not do these things, if there is no restoration, then I will come and smite the land with a curse. And of course, we understand after Malachi's prophecy, there was 400 years of silence, no No prophet came, no issue where God was speaking to those people until you get to the New Testament whereby the angel Gabriel comes and announces both the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of the Messiah himself. And so this is a great, a great prophecy. And last time we were here in this book, we looked at the proven love of God for Israel, as I said in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And so tonight I want to begin to see the reasons for God's rebuke against them. 
the reasons for God's rebuke against them. And I want to allow, I want to have that rebuke, his rebuke of them, really be used uh, in our own hearts. The rebuke that God gives Israel through Malachi, I want us to kind of look at that and say, okay, what, where am I in this kind of reality? Where am I when it comes to these kinds of issues as a, as a precaution really to us to avoid the same kind of error? We, we sometimes, I think, shy away from conviction in the Christian realm, and you see that oftentimes in churches where there is no sense in which there's conviction of sin, but we ought to see conviction as a grace, and anytime there's conviction going on in our heart, we ought to thank God for that because it is a it is a motivator for change. And so I want to see that tonight in our own hearts as we think about what Malachi is saying. So let me read for us chapter 1, verse 6, all the way down through chapter 2, verse 9. Malachi begins in verse 6, a son, God talking here, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock in a, and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart, give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. 
And then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in instruction. You read that and you just go, wow. I mean, there's a big problem. There is a big problem. I was thinking of this, and it reminded me some years ago in the late 60s and really throughout the 70s, much of my growing up years, it was normal in society to distrust everything and to distrust everyone. Any institution, every administration, major corporations, the government, they're all suspected of being completely insincere and lying at every turn. Sounds like I'm talking about today, doesn't it? That's today. Not so much has changed in our own day. Seems as if nothing can actually be trusted. Truth claims are elusive at best. They're elusive in medicine. They are elusive in business. They are elusive definitely in government. They are nearly never found in the news It seems that in every area of life, authenticity is not to be found. And the challenge for us, the challenge for you and I as Christians, is that while the world around us may be inauthentic in its claims, none of that will excuse us from being completely authentic in what we claim. Our government, the news media, huge corporations may lack any authentic credibility. It may well be that we too are of doubtful credibility and authenticity in our claims if we are not careful with how we live, with how we carry out our very lives. This is the message that God has to the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi. There was a great lack of authenticity in the people, and it began in the clergy. It began in the priests. The clergy, the priests of the day, lacked credibility, and because the priests lacked credibility, so too went the people. And so Malachi points his laser of indictment directly at the priests of Israel. And then he expands it to the people in general. Notice verse 6, he says, O priests who despise my name. 
And yet down in verse 14, he says, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. So he he goes from the priest to the greater group, the, the larger group, those who are bringing the sacrifices to the temple. He begins with the leaders, and yet he includes the people. No one escapes. Everyone worships, and everyone's worship of God seems to lack authenticity. And so God begins to confront this issue. And you'll notice that in each case, as we will see throughout this book, as we walk through it, with a foolishness really only seen in those who deny their guilt, both the priests and the people continually and even with prideful arrogance upon their heart, they respond to God's indictments with absurd questions. Questions like, who, us? You you mean we? You're talking to us? We're guilty of that? When did we do that? That's the kind of questions we're going to hear over and over and over again. Seven times they reply in this kind of way. Notice, even back in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You mean, really? You, you loved us? Verse 6, if I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord. And yet you priests say, how have we despised your name? In verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? Chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Chapter 3 and verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? Chapter 3, verse 13, Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? See, each and every time through the the blindness of their lack of credibility, the blindness that comes by their refusal in their authenticity before God, they actually accuse God of being wrong in His view. How can we be wrong? You're actually wrong. And so as we return to chapter 1, here in chapter 1, there are four areas in which God calls out the spiritual leaders of that day. And all the people really, the priests are there, and yet as we have seen in verse 14, all the people are included, and they are included to be, they're rebuked, and He's rebuking them about their lack of authenticity. And God is saying to them, you need to be authentic before me. And he's giving them these four areas in his rebuke. I'll just list them and then we'll talk about. Number one is be authentic in your profession. Be authentic in your profession. We'll see that in verse 6 and 7. And and all of these are linked together and they overlap in some ways as we go through them. 
So number one, be authentic in your profession. Number two, be authentic in your gifts. Be authentic in your gifts, verse 8 and 9. Three, be authentic in your service. Authentic in your service, verses 10 through 12. And then be authentic in the use of time. Be authentic in time or in the use of time, verses 13 and 14. We're not going to get into chapter 2 tonight. We're just going to cover these verses in chapter 1. But these are the four areas whereby they're being rebuked by God through the prophet Malachi. So let's begin with just this first area. Authenticity in your profession. Authenticity in your profession. Verses 6 and 7. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. You say, how have we despised my name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. And you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. You notice that at the outset, Malachi makes a proverbial statement. He states, in other words, an axiomatic truth. Something something that is reasonable, something that is true to happen. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. In other words, this is normal. This is natural. This is, this is what happens. This is a, an axiomatic truth. And therefore, how much more should it be in our own relationship with God that we would honor God? We honor those in the human realm that have some kind of status before us, whether it be our father or whether it be our master. We give them some sense of honor, even sometimes if it is a degraded honor that they might actually deserve. And yet here God is saying, listen, you honor them, then where is my honor? Should not my honor be more than that? Should not you be authentic in your profession that I am who You say I am in your life? In Israel's history, they were the chosen son. They were God's chosen people. Remember when Russ was teaching through Hosea, he clearly showed us that in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, right? When Israel was a youth, it says, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. This is the reality of Israel. This is who Israel was. This is what God had done for them. They were the son. He is the father. And he's making this proverbial statement to them and saying, listen, you honor one another in the human realm. Where is my honor? They were the servants of the Lord. And yet the priests, the ones who were to even lead the people, the ones who were spiritually leading Israel were not authentic. They were not an authentic picture of reality by which we honor God. And so you notice what God says. Where is my honor? If I am a father, where is my honor? Or some of your translations may say, where is my respect? Where is my respect? In other words, the leaders were giving a whole bunch of lip service about the worship of God. 
but their lives were a living contradiction. We see this all the time. We, we expect this in the pagan world. We see it happening all the time, even in our day and age. It's ironic how we live in a day and age that has absolutely zero respect for authority, zero respect for lawful authority in our nation. And yet when someone is arrested and their legal counsel takes them before the judge, how do they dress them? They always dress them in some suit, some way in which they appear to show a sense of respect to the judge whom they call your honor. And yet here we find in Israel, those who are leading the people of Israel were not even honoring the Lord. God says, where is my respect? The lives of the priests were a living contradiction. By their very lives, they were not honoring their spiritual father, and thereby by their practice, they were showing no respect to God. Now, as I read that, I thought, now there's a lesson for us right there. Especially for us who are in spiritual leadership in some kind of way, whether it be in the church, but by all of us who are leaders, by way of men and the homes we are leading. One thing to say that God is our Lord, one thing to say that God rules our lives, that we love Him, that we believe in His sovereignty, that we believe and agree with and come under His authority, but it's a whole other thing to reflect that in our lives as Christians. Sadly, that's what we see happening within evangelicalism today in the church. Christian leaders talk a lot about God, speak about God being the authority over all things, talk about trusting in God and His sovereign hand, and yet how hypocritical it is for all professed believers when churches are closing because of an unhealthy fear of the things of the world. How hypocritical that is. We trust in the sovereign hand of God. We fear God only. He is the authority over all things. And yet, we will shudder the church because we have an unhealthy fear of what the world brings. How hypocritical it is to say that God is authoritative for life and godliness and then begin to apply philosophies of men to how we think and to how we evaluate our world and how we evaluate the Word of God. What the priests were doing and what they claimed was like being an enemy of God rather than being with God. They were verbally affirming that God was their father, if I am your father, God says. They weren't submitting any area of their lives to his rightful authority. And so God says through Malachi, O priests who despise my name, You despise my name. Why? You despise my name because you say you honor me, and yet by your very lives and by your very actions, you are not honoring me at all. You are not paying me respect at all. And notice, notice what the rejecting heart does. Notice what the unwilling, rejecting heart when confronted by God, notice that it begins to indict God for his evaluation. Notice what it says. How have we despised your name? 
Now here God is saying, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? And you say, how have we despised you? What arrogance. What pride. What have we ever done, God, that would cause you to think that we despise your name? Reminds me of Genesis 3 when God says to Adam, what have you done? And instead of acknowledging his sinful error, Adam begins to blame God. What do you mean, what have I done, God? It was you who gave me this woman. He accuses God of wrongdoing. That's exactly what the priests are doing here. God, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. You, listen, our, what we're doing is right. Your perspective of what we are doing is all wrong. What arrogance. What arrogance. God says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, verse 7, but you say, how have we defiled you? You see, this is their heart. They, they are sure that they have done nothing for which they are being charged. We are innocent of the charge that you are laying at our feet. They are shocked at the accusation that God would bring. But God clearly tells them what they're doing. You are placing defiled food on my altar. You are doing what I have forbidden. In other words, you are accepting sacrifices that are inappropriate. In other words, you are accepting of sin. It's interesting, the word defiled here in verse 7 simply means polluted. 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 The pure and the unpolluted altar of God had been polluted, and it is being polluted by those who should be upholding its purity. And I believe the pollution was twofold. One way that it was polluted was that those who claim God as Lord in their lives cannot at the same time offer themselves as pure sacrifices unto God and to His use when they reject the Lordship and fail to glorify Him with their lives. You cannot, you cannot offer to God by claiming that, you, that He is the Lord of your life. You cannot say He is Lord of your life and then, and then say that I'm offering myself to God as a pure sacrifice when He is not Lord of your life. God required every sacrifice to be pure. Sacrifice was linked with the heart. It was a reflection of the heart of the person who brought it. In other words, the sacrifice reflected the person. It reflected what they were coming with and, and what was, with how they were thinking in their heart about their relationship to God. And so a polluted sacrifice showed a heart that was not contrite. A heart that was not right before God. A heart that was not humble. Showed a heart that did not tremble at God's Word. And therefore, in doing so, the Lord was being despised. And therefore, secondly, gifts offered to God are polluted when they are not the best. 
So they're polluted when the heart is wrong, and they're polluted when they are not the best. And I think we need to think about this in our own hearts, in our own lives, in evangelicalism today. The Lord always inspects the one giving the gift before He inspects the gift. Let me say that again. The Lord always inspects the one giving the gift before He inspects the gift. In other words, He looks at our heart first. He looks at our heart first. Now think about this. God doesn't care how we sing. He doesn't care how good we sing if our hearts are far from Him. We can sing like birds. We can have perfect notes. We can be the best singers and have the best performance ever. But if our hearts are far from Him, God doesn't care about that. God doesn't care how much we might put in the offering if our heart are far from Him, if it isn't of the best. And so what is God saying through Malachi to the priest? He's saying that pollute, the polluted offerer defiles the very profession they make with their lips. If the heart isn't right, it doesn't matter how we speak. Israel is saying that they loved God. They were saying that He was their Lord, that He was the one they followed, that He was the authority in their lives, but their actions showed completely otherwise. God was calling them out. If I'm your master, where's my respect? And so God is saying to them, be authentic in your profession. Be authentic in your profession. Don't just let it be words. Let it show in how you live. Secondly, secondly, he says, be authentic in your gifts. Be authentic in your gifts. And of course, this overlaps with the first because it reflects the first in action. Notice verse 8 and 9. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? We've said it already, right? Now Malachi says it with clarity. Gifts offered to God were to be unblemished. They were to be the best. Gifts offered were to be judged by what they cost the giver to give it. That's the idea in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It had to have a cost related to it. In other words, the animal was to be the firstborn. The the best one, the one with no blemishes, no defects. The grain was the first yield of the crop. In other words, it cost the family. It cost the giver. There was a sacrifice in giving it. And so, inauthenticity was clearly on display when they brought a defiled animal to the altar. There was no authenticity to it. And so here's the principle. Here's the principle. Polluted hearts 
defile the very profession made with the mouth. Polluted hearts defile the very profession made with the mouth. In other words, it really doesn't matter what we offer God by way of ourselves or our gifts if our hearts aren't right before Him. That's part of the reason why we exhort ourselves every time we take communion. We are coming to God and we are, we are having that communion moment, if you will, with God at the, at the remembrance time that He instituted and, and we are to have a pure heart. We see that from the Corinthian problem when they were coming with uh, uh, a heart of sinfulness, a heart of selfishness, and, and some were even dying because of that. Each and every day we ought to be examining ourselves in order to bring our best to God. Notice the irony in what is being said. God says, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly? Why not offer it to them? Why not? Why would you respect the authority in the world with a greater show of respect than you show to me? That's what God's saying. <coughs> God clearly told Israel in the Old Testament what is required of them by way of sacrifice. So uh, to violate His clear commands, to violate what He clearly had said to do, not only showed a lack of seriousness about giving, seriousness in the heart of the one who was to give, it showed a lack of sobriety to that very reality, but it also showed a blatant unwillingness to just obey what God had said. And if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough, the spiritual leaders were accepting of it all. They had the shamelessness to come to God in light of it all and ask for grace. Verse 9, Now will you not entreat God's favor that He might be gracious to us? I mean, we know what God's required. We know we are to honor Him. We know we should be authentic in our profession and authentic in what we are giving. We should not offer these things. The priest should not be accepting of these things. And then we have the audacity to go to God and say, oh, just be gracious to us. God says, such an offering on your part. Will He receive any of you kindly? The word entreat, by the way, is a very pointed word in the original language. Very pointed word. You know what it means? It means to make smooth. To make smooth. You'll entreat God's favor. You go to make it smooth. In other words, they knew it was wrong. And so they went to God, and to put it in our own vernacular, they went to butter up God. Let's go butter Him up. Let's flatter Him a little bit. Let's try to smooth it out. God says, I hate that. I hate that. I hate inauthenticity. We need to ensure that we are being authentic in our professions, beloved, and we are being authentic in our giving. We cannot give that which costs us nothing. That leads us to this third area. 
Be authentic in your service. Be authentic in your service. Notice what he says in verses 10 through 12. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Go down to verse 12. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. We'll get back to verse 11 in a moment. The things that were being offered to the people or by the people and the way they were being accepted by the spiritual leaders, and they should have never accepted the defiled animals. They should have never accepted those kinds of things. That was all outrageous to God. That was unspeakable to God, that God through Malachi makes an unsuspecting suggestion. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. God's saying, look, lock the doors. Lock the doors. Close down the temple. Don't let anybody even come in. It'd be more preferable to have no one come for worship than to have worthless worship. That's the idea. Be more preferable, God says, for you to not have anybody worshiping me. Don't even open the doors of the temple than to have you come and have worthless worship before me. I don't know about you, beloved, but I read that over and over and over again, and I couldn't help but think of what has just gone on in evangelicalism throughout the world. God has allowed this, and what is becoming more and more evident as time goes on, as a man-manipulated virus to have such an effect upon the world that churches were actually being shut. Maybe, just maybe, all of this was part of God's divine judgment upon those who profess to know Him and profess to love Him, but with their very lives they offer Him worthless service. Maybe God was just saying, listen, the leadership in evangelicalism is accepting such worthless worship and they are defiling my tame. Look, just shut the churches. Just shut the churches. It seems in evangelicalism that being with the people of God to worship has become almost optional. People say sometimes today, as long as it fits my schedule as long as I'm not being personally threatened in some kind of way, then I'll allow time for worship. God says, maybe it would be just better to shut the doors. Why? Because anything other than worship of God, as God defines it, is vain, worthless worship. Notice verse 10 again. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. Uselessly means vain, vain. The original word used for useless there in the Old Testament is used 32 times, and it generally has the meaning of something that is done for no reason at all, for without any cause. It's useless. It's, it's just a mundane, vain, repetitious idea. 
And so in the context here in Malachi, it's saying that both the fire and the sacrifices were actions done by the leaders and by the people. And all of that was to symbolize an open fellowship with God. And yet in actuality, what was taking place, what they were doing was actually just meaningless. It was useless. The gifts they were offering, the service they were rendering was useless. Continuing in that kind of way would only produce a delusion of false security before God. I think that's what's happening in the Christian realm today when worship is defined according to our own terms. When we make worship these shows, it's useless. It only deludes. Why? Because it's inauthentic. It's not authentic at all. And notice verse 12, but you are profaning it. You're profaning my altar. I'm not pleased, he says in verse 10, nor will I accept the offering from you. You are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. God's saying this has been going on so long now that even the people are showing a contempt for doing any of it. It's been going on and you've been accepting it for so long now that in the hearts of the people there's a contempt for worship altogether. The local service is not just impure. The people are making excuses as to why they weren't doing it. Sad. They held to a form of worship, but not as God required There's a beautiful note in all of this, however, because not all is lost. Because God will be worshipped with authenticity despite human failure. And God, through Malachi, just drops it right in the middle of verses 10 and 12 in verse 11. He says, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting... My name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is a great verse, because while we may fail to worship God as we ought, while we may in time and at times follow our own sinful hearts, God is not going to have no worship. God will be worshipped because there is coming a day whereby all the nations will worship God in every place and there will be a grain offering offered that is pure and His name will be great among the nations. Of course, we understand the Old Testament Israel was called to be a light to the nations. They had been told by God that all people on the earth would be blessed by her seed. And although Israel failed, and although many a professing Christian today fails to worship God authentically, God is able and will one day be worshipped perfectly. In fact, Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 2, that one day every knee will bow 
Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be worshipped. And so they are inauthentic in their profession. They are inauthentic in their gifts. They are inauthentic in their service. And then finally God says, you must be authentic in your time. Be authentic with your time. Verses 13 and 14, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you, you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. Oh, how tiresome it is, they say. Oh, how tiresome because of their inauthenticity toward God, worship of God. The time around God's table, the time of worship had become a tiresome task. Spending time in worship was now an intrusion. It was a bother. It was something that just intruded on life rather than it being the outflow of life. Notice, he says to them, you say, my, how tiresome it is. All worship had become a burden. I think it was reflected in three ways. It was reflected by their words, by what they said, how tiresome it is. It's reflected in their attitude behind it. It was a disdain to them, and therefore it was reflected in their actions. God says, listen, you disdainfully sniff at it. You disdainfully sniff at it. You say it's despised. You come with a wrong attitude to it. Thinking You think that even though you bring some, some sick and blemished sacrifice that I should accept it anyway. And yet by your very actions, you think you can fool me. God says, no, I won't be fooled. I will be feared. I'm a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations. That's the heart of the problem, isn't it? That's really the heart of the problem. They did not fear God. They did not fear God. And because they did not fear God, they did not worship God authentically. They had heard the prophecy of Isaiah. They had heard the prophets of old before them. Isaiah 66.2 said that God looks to those who are humble, to those who are contrite of spirit, and those who tremble at His Word. In a word, God simply looks to those who fear Him. And how do we know when we fear God? We know by how we live. By how we live. How often... How often will we spend hours and hours upon a chair somewhere engaged in some activity that has no eternal value? 
and then come to worship wondering how long it's going to be before it ends. I wonder what does that say about us? Is that not just another way of demonstrating our dissatisfaction with God's Word and our dissatisfaction with our offering to Him? Malachi is saying to Israel, listen, you have to be authentic. You're not being authentic. God is saying to you, you're not being authentic. I have loved you and I deserve your love back because I am God and you are not authentic before me. Why? Because you don't fear me. You don't fear me. This is the message for us, beloved. Are we authentic? Are we authentic in our profession? Certainly we sin. There's by no means in which any of us could stand here tonight and even say, well, I do it right. Yeah, I'm authentic in every way. I'm authentic in my profession. I'm authentic in my giving. I'm authentic in my service. I'm authentic in every way before God. That would be arrogance. We know we fail. What do we do when we fail? Do we fear God enough to go to God and ask for forgiveness? Go to God and repent of our sin, striving to follow after His Word? Do we fear His name? Do we have to be authentic in our profession? We have to be authentic in our giving. We must be authentic in our service, and we must be authentic in the use of our time. He is Lord. He is Lord. And so the exhortation to us is, since he is Lord, since he is Father, since he is Master, then let us show that by being true in our lives. By being true. Well, the priests get disciplined beginning in chapter 2, and we'll begin to look at that next time. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for tonight. I want to thank you for this really brief look at what Malachi has said, the challenge that it is to us, the revealing nature of how easy it is to be inauthentic in our own hearts. Lord, the truth be known, all of us have inauthenticity in our worship to you from time to time. Lord, the flesh is weak, the spirit is strong. You have given us all we need for life and godliness. You know that we can do what is right by the power of the Spirit in us. And so, Lord, we don't want to be like the priests in Israel. We don't want to be like the people of that day. We want to be authentic. The Lord, help us tonight to take these things to heart, to really work on them in our lives, not be so crushed that we're immovable. Know that your grace abounds. There's mercy new every morning. Acknowledging where we fail, striving all the more to do what honors you. And thank you for the grace and the power to do that. Lord, we do love you. We we believe in you. Or like the Apostle said, help our unbelief cause us to love you in action as we do in words. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.